Section 22 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. East Coast Notes, Chapter 1, Some Bird Notes, Part 4. Herons and Fishers. In February 1895, a sportsman killed four herons in two shots and his exploit went the rounds of the county papers including the eastern daily press the following day appeared a note signed s s g which read as follows sir i heartily congratulate mr c on having killed four herons in two shots these birds, besides being detrimental to sport, consume in this country tons of human food daily, and do no good whatever. A note followed from an old sportsman, who said, I do not agree with those who say that herons are not fit to eat. When they are stuffed with bacon and well larded, they are as good as a swan. In olden times they were eaten by royalty, and why not by common folk now? If anyone who is a preserver of fish can say a word in favour of the heron, now is his time to speak, for many are being shot. I should as soon think of preserving rats or sparrows, as I am not aware that herons do any good, and they certainly deprive the quiet angler of no end of sport, and sometimes of a good dinner. I replied to these rather extravagant epistles to the effect that I know the wary old Hernshaw well, and have often watched him adroitly catching shore crabs, young eels and small flounders, or any such little fry as comes to hand. Most of the fish he devours are the valueless fry of our more despised fishes. Who eats bream, roach, perch, and such coarse fish? Certainly not the anglers, who themselves haul out tons yearly to rot and feed the flies and rats upon our river and broadsides, thinking, wisely too, that they are not worth the carrying home. On the other hand, he weeds out, and possibly prevents, overcrowding. I will grant the heron may be a bit of a nuisance in the neighbourhood of a trout stream, but on the whole, he is a fellow whom I should be sorry to see exterminated. The correspondence rounded up with an editorial comment. The hero of the herons has found his champion, SSG congratulates him on his marvellous feat of destroying four herons in two shots. The virtue of the deed lies in the fact that herons are detrimental to sport and consume tons of human food daily. One would like to ask what detriment herons are to sport. Do they so diminish the fish that the angler has to pass weary hours of disappointment instead of hilarious excitement at the capture of his scaly victims? 
when i read of the doings of the hundred and one angling clubs in the city of norwich i can but demur to the statement that sport is injured as to the consumption of human food does the correspondent mean the freshwater fish which the herons get from dikes and streams if so i would like to ask how many tons of so-called human food do the anglers destroy in the course of a season herons were formerly preserved for the sport of falconry they have now so diminished that their wanton destruction is little less than a crime heron versus answer in october 1906 some most interesting correspondence appeared in the eastern daily press having reference to the common heron ardea cenaria a short letter dated october the ninth read as follows the hernshaw dear sir there is a bird about here called an answer it's a bird with long legs and long neck and is the colour of slate is it its right name or is it that what they call it in norfolk will you please tell me its right name i remain etc v j c norwich an editorial comment accompanied this note to this effect our naturalist readers will be interested in hearing of a new piece of local nomenclature one would imagine that anybody sufficiently interested in birds to write on such a point would know a heron when he saw it and evidently judging by his brief but sufficient word picture our correspondent has seen it a young heron is a heronshaw corrupted in general use into hernshaw and applied to heron young or old it is our correspondent's delightful shot at norfolk pronunciation that makes answer of it it occurred to us at first that he must have been chatting with some learned person who could not refer to a goose without latinity but the long legs and long neck and slate colour reveal the heron answer is distinctly good from among several other letters i have selected two or three sir the correct name of the bird that mr j describes is the heron this bird is common in these marshy districts and is often seen to dive into the river for fish which is its chief food signed b c sir the local term for a heron generally called hansa no doubt derives its origin from shakespeare hamlet says in act four scene two i know a hawk from a handsaw and this has been corrupted into hansa it is not often our norfolk people drop their h's signed h l c sir has not your correspondent heard the following rhyme i ha seen the roses in blow i ha seen the violets blue 
I has seen the handsy fly ever so high, but I never see nothing like you. Signed, Yokel. Sir, what Shakespeare put into Hamlet's speech was doubtless, I know a hawk from a hanser, meaning, I know the pursuer from the pursued, or, to paraphrase the sentences, I know a hound from a hare. In Shakespeare's day, hawking was greatly followed, and the heron, or hanser, was the most coveted quarry. The copyist clearly went wrong, and not knowing what a hanser was, substituted the word hand-saw. One player went so far as to imitate sawing. John Kemble read the passage, I knew a hawk from my hand, sir, which he held up. He evidently did not know the vernacular for heron or heronshaw, but saw that handsaw was nonsense. Signed, J.B. Taking exception to the first reply of B.C., I replied as follows. Sir, the letter of V.J.'s was a fair knockout. There was something so unassumingly honest, yet naive about it, that it was refreshing. I did not intend entering the lists until Mr. C. asserted that the heron dives into the river, an acrobatic feat he never indulges in. I have seen scores of answers fishing for eels and flounders on Braden, but he never goes more than thigh-deep in search of them. At high water, he haunts the top or edge of a flat. At low, he wades up and down the drains. On seeing a fish, he strikes at it, sometimes going the whole length of his neck under, having just sufficient length of that extremity to correspond with that of the others. Rarely, answer misses his footing and slips into deep water off the edge of a flat, and a right lively conflopption he usually makes to right-side himself again, although he will sometimes unconcernedly start swimming. True, he lives principally on fish, but he accounts for many water voles, and would get more if opportunity offered, besides other vermin. Signed, John Nolittle. Seagoing Pigeons A remarkable instance of tame pigeons making daily visits to a lightship came under my notice early in January 1906. Some 18 months before, a pigeon, in hazy weather, made its appearance on the St. Nicholas lightship, which is moored a mile and a half from the town. It was fed, and, being unmolested, rested a while, and, on the weather brightening, flew back to the shore. Not long after, it voluntarily returned to the ship, was fed again, and once more went home. It's learned to recognise the tin in which some corn was kept, and would soon come aboard when it saw the signal flashed by the holding up of the tin above the bulwarks. 
shortly after another bird somewhat shyer ventured on the trip with it and was made welcome in time no fewer than five birds made it a daily practice to honour the delighted seamen with their presence they did not all seem related although two were probably young birds belonging to the first pair they always alighted first on the davit guys and then descended to the deck to feed after which they flew away home for the remainder of the day on my buttonholing the mate of the st nicholas in december nineteen o six he assured me that the birds still visited the ship and that sometimes as many as ten flew aboard the drumming of the snipe that there should have been so much dispute as to how the common snipe produces his nuptial drumming in the merry springtime has always seemed to me to be a rather curious thing i must confess that the subject did not appeal much to me for Braden, with its more interesting migrant wildfowl has always absorbed my leisure time in the earlier half of the year but one sunday afternoon in april nineteen o six a male snipe at herringfleet so forced himself on my notice that i determined if possible to satisfy myself once and for all upon this phenomenon a strange buzzing sound very much like that produced by rapidly twirling in the air a notched stick made fast to a piece of string a toy well known to boys attracted my attention hiding myself behind a scrubby tree and bringing my glasses to bear on the strange musician i noticed that the sound was always produced when the bird turning suddenly at the highest part of its flight pitched downwards and manipulated his wings with greater rapidity again and again i saw him turn and as often the drumming was repeated and i felt quite convinced that it was no vocal production on july the twelfth i was at belton chatting with a native in his garden at the edge of a small fen bordering on the marshes brooks the said native is a semi-naturalist half a sportsman general carpenter and factotum of the village and a good observer to boot he pointed out a dead tree to the bare topmost bough of which twenty feet from the ground with wings fluttering and head poised at half a right angle a snipe repeatedly resorted to drum the noise he emphatically assured me coming from the throat quite a number of snipes nest yearly on the marshes between his place near the railway station and the borough walls he had seen a snipe vibrating its wings and drumming when poised on the topmost sail of an adjoining mill he would hear nothing of a possibility of his seeing one snipe in such a situation and hearing others drumming on the wing at the time in a note to the eastern daily press 
I asked for information on this point, and shortly after secured the following letter on the subject. Coltishall, Norwich, October the 12th, 1906. Dear Sir, I see you raise the question in your letter of today in the EDP as to the drumming of the snipe. It is a very vexed question, though I have not much doubt in my own mind about its being the combined action of the wings and tail. I had a splendid opportunity some years ago of observing the operation. I was standing under a small tree on the marshes near Below when I heard a snipe drum. It evidently did not see me, as it made its dive some five or six times, coming down within thirty feet, just over my head, and I distinctly saw what I have never seen in any picture, or in any description, that at the base of the tail, which was fully expanded, a sabre-shaped feather was standing out on either side at right angles i am not sure at this distance of time whether the curved part was in front or not the wings were half closed and vibrating very rapidly which would naturally increase the draught of air for these feathers which i believe are the principal factors in causing the sound you can easily find the feathers as they are a different shape to the others. If you kill a wounded snipe, by pressing the breast and back, you can generally see them move out sideways slightly. Signed, yours faithfully, C.W.A. A sketch of the tail and these particular feathers was inserted in the letter, and on examining a snipe, I noticed them as described. Still pursuing the subject, I wrote to an old sportsman living at Alton Broad, who promptly replied as follows. Alton Broad, November the 9th, 1906. Dear Mr. Patterson, In response to your postcard, if on a summer's evening you watch a snipe through powerful glasses in mid-air, you will observe him fly upwards, bleating in a natural manner, then suddenly throw himself on his side, draw up his tail to a right angle, and even more acute than that, and fall rapidly head first towards the earth, beating rapidly with his wings. Hence, in some districts, the action is called bleating, and in others, drumming from his wing motion. The late Mr. Edward Poyser, who was a good naturalist, told me that he had a snipe stuffed with its tail spread out in this position, and that he succeeded, by forcing air rapidly through it, imitating as far as he was able the wind that would come from the action of the snipe's wings, in producing the drumming sound. I have very little doubt that this is the manner in which the sound is produced. Signed, yours truly, W.S.E. Avian Discord Small wading birds are peaceably inclined. 
the struggle for existence leaves little time for disputation on the margin of the retreating or the incoming waves and their love of society is in most of the species notorious the ringed plover not only tolerates the company of the dunlin but himself gratuitously forces his presence into the midst of a busy flock it is only at the time of nesting that the ringed plover ever resents intrusion from others but himself is then inclined to seclusiveness gulls more particularly the larger kinds will pursue each other and fight in mid-air over a coveted morsel that the original finder failed to swallow on the instant of his luck it is usual for starlings to harass a kestrel flying across the marshes and nothing uncommon for a parcel of angry finches to mob a cuckoo sparrows will fight and scuffle at certain times like fighting cocks and pull feathers off each other's heads on one occasion i witnessed a remarkable scrimmage on the bure marshes between some starlings and a bunch of common sandpipers there was much squealing and a great show of anger but i did not see the finish of it for the wading birds beat a retreat their assailants pursuing them what two utterly distinct races of birds like these could find to quarrel over would be hard to say a heron and a gull engaged in fierce combat one day on Braden. the heron seemed glad to beat a retreat while the gull received a nasty wound in its breast from the heron's vicious bill thrusts it may be that these feelings and actions of opposite characters are referable to accidents and emergencies arising from jealousy and rivalry probably due to aggression and resentment while sometimes fears for the safety of their young make birds quarrelsome one august morning in eighteen ninety five i saw a rare to-do between a swarm of swallows and a kestrel the latter having been caught hanging around one of the mills as likely as not in search of field mice on the marsh although it is just probable that some weakling swallow had attracted its attention the redbreast is quarrelsome enough in winter and particularly objects to intrusions on his territories driving away with vigorous assault any newcomer where food is scattered for him i once placed four in a cage but would not repeat the experiment on the following morning one lay dead on the floor of the cage another lay there next day and yet another on the following morning the victor seemed quite proud of his conquests and i let him go the pursuit and robbing of gulls by skewers can hardly come under the heading of discord for it is a recognised part of their natural economy too lazy or too incompetent to engage in honest fishing 
the skewers impose a kind of avian income tax with a persistency and vigour that suggest a power to fish for themselves if they chose to do so curlew sandpiper and godwit in the autumn of eighteen ninety eight i saw a poor little curlew sandpiper running about on the mudflats one of its wings having been badly damaged by a gunshot after a rather exciting chase over the mudflats i secured the bird bound up its wing and placed it in an empty rabbit hutch next morning i found it extremely hungry and quite ready to consume a number of wood lice onisicus and small worms i hunted up for it in less than a week it readily picked food from my fingers and the wing had fairly well healed a bar-tailed godwit quite uninjured was brought me about the same time and the two were removed to more commodious premises where they lived most amicably for some time the godwit was fond of a big lobworm and it was entertaining to watch it set its foot upon a worm too big to swallow whole break it in halves by a dexterous wrench of its bill and bolt one half forthwith the bird was exceedingly dexterous with its foot using it in a particularly hand-like manner both in keeping the worm from moving out of reach and in assisting the writhing creature down into its gullet i never before saw a wader make such a use of its foot worms small pieces of suet pudding wood lice and cockles were readily eaten as well as shrimps and other crustaceans the curlew sandpiper proved very adept at catching flies and would stand on one leg apparently dozing but all the while alert to see or hear the passing of an insect did a fly alight within eighteen inches of it it stood very little chance of escape from the dexterous creature and those coming within six inches were snapped up without more ado than a deft turn of the neck and maybe the dropping of the resting leg i thought this partiality to insects an interesting fact the godwit drew a line at flies an early migration a most remarkable movement of birds waders in particular took place during the last week of august nineteen o five the following extracts from a letter i wrote to the county paper will give an idea of this strange incident babel in the midnight sky sir anyone abroad on friday night last in yarmouth or norwich must certainly have noticed and probably have been interested in the strange babel of bird cries that came and went as the bewildered birds wheeled to and fro abovehead the reason of this delightful hubbub was simple enough and whereas in times gone by the old folks sagely wagging their heads whispered of troubled spirits the boys and girls of to-day 
know sufficient about birds and their ways to tell you they were birds on their midnight journeyings calling to each other so as to keep in touch with their fellows in the dark the noisiest proceedings however took place when most young folks should be abed or they even might have wondered i was in norwich up till ten o'clock and from nine to ten i was much interested as well as delighted listening with a friend in his backyard in st giles and pitting my knowledge of bird cries against his and straining our eyes to their utmost in endeavouring to pierce the darkness hoping to see some of the nearer approaching flocks reflected against the light that glared upwards into the night of course we knew that these early migrants had been held up fascinated perhaps bewildered more likely by the glare of the lights and held spellbound to be released in the morning when light returned most of these were undoubtedly young birds as the earliest travellers mostly are the younger broods of waders going southward before their elders instinctively knowing their never-before-travelled road i knew most were youngsters by their notes that were pitched slightly out of the key their elders pipe in among the birds above head at norwich were redshanks by scores grey plovers probably in hundreds a few ringed plovers here and there a lapwing and once a sanderling other notes some quite strange to me were heard on arriving at yarmouth at eleven i landed into the thick of the night wailing especially in the neighbourhood of Braden. grey plovers piped in still greater numbers and goodly flocks of curlews joined in the chorus numerous dunlins helping all along homewards i heard the night host yelping as if it had been an october night and the bulk of the migrants were passing of course i associated the southeast wind with this invasion and wondered why the glass had not fallen lower i wonder if the other norfolk towns were visited in this fashion probably all of them were signed yours truly john no little replies to my query were speedily forthcoming and a note appeared at once as follows sir large flocks of birds passed over north ham after ten thirty on friday night and were crossing for hours would they be incoming or outgoing migrants signed j d w g c wrote the arrested migration which john nolittle noted at norwich and yarmouth on friday night may possibly have extended for a considerable distance along the east coast it was forced on one's notice at felixstowe where the night was very rough and the calls of birds over the town were audible for many hours they did not appear to be passing over in comparative quietude as is i believe usual on migration 
but were apparently circling round, dazed by the lights of the streets and seafront. The cries were not easily recognisable by one whose chief natural history experience has been inland, but they were undoubtedly those of waders, while some of the harsher calls seemed to be those of gulls. Mr. J. H. Gurney wrote me on August the 28th. I hear this morning from Cambridge that at that place also numbers of birds were attracted by the lamps on Friday night. So it would appear that this movement was widespread in East Anglia. End of section 22